0: Olympics are one of those cultural institutions that are a constant enough presence to feel like they've kind of always been there. They're also big enough that lots of people want to knock it down a peg for various reasons, and lots of other people want that first group to just stop being so uptight and enjoy it already. So which is it? Are the Olympics good or bad? Let's begin. Here on HI101 with Yumika Hutchinruther. Hello. And uh, yeah, we've both had a bit of an October, so yeah, <laughs> we're we're gonna we're gonna take uh, a bit of a not a break exactly, but we're gonna talk about something a little bit lighter in the modern Olympics. Yeah, sounds good. Which I always knew was pretty interesting, but uh, mm. I found some new stuff today, which I'm very excited to share with you. So that's
1: really cool. I'm really excited about this topic. I'm I'm really glad you came up with it.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, we've always enjoyed watching the Olympics when it comes around. I mean, who yeah. doesn't, right? Like mm-hmm. it's. It's one of those things, it's, it's it's just far enough in between that it's nice when they come back around. There's yeah. always something going on that's interesting. And we've whatever.
1: got Tokyo 2020 coming up soon. Yeah,
0: that should be exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. Some really interesting events going into this one.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: Not as interesting as some of the ones we're going to talk about today, <laughs> but very interesting nonetheless. Yeah. The thing about the modern Olympics, though, is that you can't really, really talk about them until you talk about the ancient Olympics a little bit. Because the people who put the modern Olympics into place are very much looking back to the past for sometimes inspiration, sometimes guidance. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're always kind of keeping an eye on this really long tradition. So let's uh, let's go over that a little bit first. Whenever I had to do a project on the Olympics every like two years or whatever in school, mm-hmm. just like literally everyone else, um, we always kind of touched on the ancient Olympics a little bit and sort of moved right through that to whatever was relevant at that point in time. One thing i never quite grasped was just how long the Olympics ran for like consecutively in ancient Greece mm-hmm.
2: um,
0: the very first games I mean it's it's long enough ago that the dates are disputed the customary date that it starts is 776 BCE oh wow so 8th century BCE and the reason the reason it starts origins are lost to time there's like nine different origin stories they're all mythical in nature because yeah. uh, at, at its core the Olympics are very much... A religious ceremony for the ancient Greeks. It's mm-hmm. it's sports. It's worship by way of sports. Yeah. Um, generally, the the Olympics specifically are de- dedicated to Zeus. There's this massive temple in Olympia, Greece, um, which is not at Mount Olympus, by the way. They're two completely different locations. But mm-hmm. the statue of Zeus that's going to be built there is one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. It's it's massive. So religion is a really big part of those games. There's lots of stresses on things like unity and tradition and, um, you know, putting differences aside to come together and compete in, in uh, fraternity and stuff like that. Like a lot of the stuff that you'll hear kind of thematically about the, the modern Olympics as well. Yeah. It's held once every four years. There's actually four different uh, yearly games that are done in a cycle. It's just the Olympics are the only ones that we really talk about. The uh, three off years are the Pythian Games, the Nemean Games, and the Isthmian Games and they're not as like prestigious or as well known as the olympics but every single year there's people competing at these competitions mm-hmm. It's not just sport that they're doing at these uh, at these uh, ceremonies. Uh, there's also um, religious ceremony, including like animal sacrifice. Usually at the halfway point of the games, hmm. there's a hundred oxen that are slaughtered to Zeus's Whoa. Uh, in, in in sacrifice to Zeus. Like it's a it's a big deal. There's a, a priestly cast that comes up that is at Olympia twenty four seven. Like they're they're centered there. Right. Um, and the town actually becomes relatively wealthy because of just. All of these people coming from all over Greece. So essentially what what happens is each city-state in ancient Greece gets to send competitors, one competitor per event, to basically see which city-state is best at that particular thing.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And already you start seeing really obvious parallels in all of this, right? Yeah. And when the Olympics start out, it's relatively regional, like it's quite localized in Mm -hmm. in sort of the very south of, of Greece. But as it becomes more and more prestigious and um, as Greek culture sort of spreads further and further, it becomes a bigger deal until sort of the whole Greek world, uh, the Hellenic League really, is is centered around these games in such a central way that Olympiads are actually used as a measurement of time. So mm. they'll, they'll measure it by which Olympic, uh, um, like, like which four-year period they're in. So historical events will be listed as this happened in X olympiad
1: Okay, that's um, cool.
0: As a way of sort of like syncing up time between all these different places that have different ways of, of marking time. Right. They're all coming together in these Olympics. Mm-hmm. Olympia also becomes an artistic center. So there's art, there's poetry, there's music being so- showcased, some of it in uh, religious ceremonies, some of it as just people coming to a place they know a lot of people will be to sell their wares. Right. So there's a little... Bit of that as well, and it becomes such an important part of Greek life that in a lot of places I've seen, it listed as basically one of the two biggest defining features of Greek society. Mm-hmm. It got to the point where having having an Olympic champion from your hometown was such an honor and such a such a prestigious thing that city states would actually poach champions from other cities so they'd oh. bribe these people that are you know these athletes that they know are really good at a certain event yeah. they'd bribe them to come and live in their city and then huh. compete on that city's behalf just so they can win a title and and yeah it, it even gets to the point where some of the colonial period of greek of ancient greek life is centered around the olympics in mm-hmm. that you know colonialism under under Ancient Greece is a, is a very different animal than what we normally think of with you know 17th and 18th century colonialism. But what they would do is they would go and try and start a new city somewhere that has sort of a parent-child relationship with the original city. So okay. a bunch of people would go out from Athens and start a new city, but that city would have a relationship with Athens that would involve uh, trade relationships. It would involve uh, political relationships, military treaties, things mm-hmm. like that. One of the things that they would do to encourage a new colony is basically send an Olympic champion to help found that village mm-hmm. so that they can be put on the map in a very real way, culturally speaking, fairly soon. Because they have somebody from this brand new colony that'll come compete in the Olympics, win a title for this new city. And mm-hmm. then it's like, hey, this is an Olympic winning city. Like you can go live there. It's fantastic. So they're they're kind of using these these athletes as sort of a... Sweetening the deal, sort of thing, which Mm -hmm. is kind of interesting. The games in general were considered like an outlet for aggression between city states. The thing that's always a little bit hard to keep in your head about ancient Greece is that, like, it's very small, it's a lot of distinct political bodies, very, very close to each other. Right. And Greece does not have a lot in the way of resources necessarily. So they're always scrapping over these same kind of limited resources all the time. So there's a lot of warfare. Every four years when the Olympics are on, there's a truce, um, a temporary one at least, Mm -hmm. where any athletes who are traveling to Olympia to to compete have immunity, basically. You're not allowed to touch anybody that's on their way to compete. Hmm. And within Olympia, there's a truce as well. Anyone who's there for the games is not allowed to physically fight. Right. That's all left outside. It is about sports only. Mm -hmm. And these truces were put to the test quite a number of times. Like even to the point of like the Peloponnesian war, I'm not, I'm not sure how much you've you'd be familiar other than maybe not the name, particularly. But, yeah. yeah. But, but it was, it was one of the most like devastating, like Greeks versus other Greeks wars in, in ancient history. Mm-hmm. Um, even during the Peloponnesian war, the, the games went on and they uh, competitors from both sides went to, to compete at the Olympics. Now it did turn into a bit of a forum where like, treaties were announced at the Olympics, uh, you know, just so everybody knows, you know, we're now allied with so-and-so and they're going to help us out next time it comes to a battle. Mm-hmm. Nothing you can do about it here, but just so everybody knows or, right. or um, you know, a, a certain city going, well, I'm going to sacrifice so many goats and this city saying, well, I'm going to sacrifice so many oxen and, mm-hmm. and competing for like who does the best war sacrifice and things like that. So it was yeah. very like performative, but it still wasn't actual battle. Yeah. Which is is a really interesting thing. The game started off with like a single foot race event. It was just shy of like two hundred meters, and it kind of built uh, events from there. But most of the, most of them are pretty. Simple. They're either races or some sort of combat or combat simulation. So either like wrestling or uh, javelin throw, things like that. Uh, There was a lot of equestrian uh, events. Oh, cool. Women weren't allowed to compete. However, some did win olive branches, which is the traditional uh, uh, prize at the Olympics, uh, through owning uh, chariot teams that they sent to the Olympics and had someone else uh, drive for them. Um, so you could become an Olympic champion that way if your if your horses did well. Right. <laughs> um, the uh, the athletes competed uh, in the nude. It's another one that like they haven't quite a hundred percent pinned down the reasoning why. It seems like it mm-hmm. makes wrestling a little bit like you can't grab onto clothing. Right. But, um, there may have been religious undertones there as well, things like that. Okay. And you kind of get to a point where the pentathlon is usually considered like the pinnacle of the ancient Olympics. Whoever wins that one is like that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the, the crowning uh, event. That'd be uh, running, uh, long jump, discus throw, uh, javelin throw, and wrestling.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And the games would keep going from uh, 776 BCE until 393 CE, so nearly 1,200 years.
1: That's a long time.
0: When it was finally suppressed as unchristian by Theodosius the mm-hmm. first, But for a long time, like, prestige at the olympic games like even after greece is conquered by rome prestige at the olympic games is like a big deal like uh, nero famously competed in the olympics like he basically bribed his way in mm-hmm. he didn't he didn't even only bribe his way in he also bribed an olympics uh, off the regular four-year cycle because he wouldn't have been able to make it
2: mm-hmm.
0: um he entered as a chariot driver hmm. uh he crashed and he had bribed all the judges, mm-hmm. so they decided that he was the winner because obviously if he hadn't crashed, he would have finished oh, first. Oh my
1: goodness. <laughs> but
0: it was that important to him, right? Yeah. And like, bribing is like a big part of the games. Yeah. Uh, everybody's trying to pay everybody off. They're they're trying to pay off judges. They're trying to pay off opponents to take a dive. I, I think a lot of the people we're going to talk about in the revival portion of this show are looking at these games as like this this uh, this noble ideal of what right. sportsmanship should be, but it's like no, they got caught all the time bribing yeah. each other or or uh, that trying stuff's to, been going
1: on for literal ages. Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. Or or trying to like poison uh, competitors or, or things like that. There's a when when you come up to Olympia, there's a series of bronze statues. I think it was a, about sixteen or so uh, when the games were finally shut down. Bronze statues of Zeus. That each statue referred to a very, like, high-profile time that somebody got caught cheating. <laughs> and it was a reminder, like, uh, you're going to be immortalized in bronze if you get caught cheating. Right. Don't do that. Right. And it's kind of, like, it's interesting because you can see all these things that, you know, are going to be really attractive to people who are who are interested in, in ideals of sportsmanship and things like that. But what you also see there is these, like, really political things with people making statements about war and you mm-hmm. see these these very, like underhanded uh uh, attempts to win at any cost that are probably in place ever since people have come up with games like people just cheat it's sort of a thing that happens and it's remarkable how much like the modern games they actually look when you keep looking closer and closer Mm -hmm. there's a lot of that stuff going on but we're not here to talk about the uh the ancient ones we're looking at the uh, at the modern games so let's jump ahead a, a very long time, because as I said, they get shut down as, as unchristian. It's this uh, celebration to the honor of Zeus, and that gets just shut right down. This interesting thing happens in the 15th, 16th centuries, uh, known as the Renaissance, which uh, you know, in a two-sentence version, people start looking at the ancient world for Inspiration. Mm-hmm. Uh, they see us. They see history as this sort of three-part thing. There's the ancient world, and then this you know huge stretch of time that they'll call the Dark Ages, and then society is finally getting back to something like ancient times. And so,
1: yeah, kind of like a cyclical thing.
0: Mm-hmm. And since we're well, you know, rena- Renaissance means rebirth, right? Since yeah. we're back to about the same level of, of standard of living as, as these people would have seen it. Likewise, we should be. Following some of the same sorts of ideals, or or, or replicating uh, the the Romans and Greeks in some way, mm-hmm. and and Greece especially is seen as as uh, an ideal to uh, aspire to, mm-hmm. and the Olympics being, you know, as I said, one of the two biggest parts of of Greek society, and the only one that isn't blatantly religious, and and by by extension, pagan. Yeah, um, the Olympics are seen as sort of like, a, oh, that's an interesting idea. Like, could we be? Could we learn anything from holding this sort of competition? I want to talk to you about the first Olympic Games that started in sixteen twelve. Okay, they're called the Cotswold Olympic Games, spelled O L I M P I C K, and this is the Olympics, but make it Shakespeare. And it is the silliest thing. There's something. There's something so silly about certain things that come out of Britain. And somehow <laughs> the Cotswold Games are like a distillation of this. Nice. I. I don't. I. I had. I went over so many times just to make sure I was actually reading this stuff right. It started in uh, Chipping Camden, England. I'm <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. This is real, and it's held annually the week of Whitsun. So. <laughs> That's so nice. I know it's 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 <laughs> very like Tolkien meets it's Benedict like, Cumberbatch. It's very yeah. Like it's, it's really
1: quaint and mm-hmm. charming sounding, and it sounds delightful.
0: Yeah, yeah. It started off as this sort of like, you know, the 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 main events are things that are considered like useful in combat in some way, but like again, kind of abstracted. Mm-hmm. The same way that something like discus throw is at its heart a combat sport. Like it's seen as like a siege defense thing just removed a couple of times so you get things like uh quarter staff fighting and uh wooden sword fighting horse racing uh jumping events hammer toss nice. uh, racing <laughs> dancing events which sure why not it's just really? fun yeah absolutely. that sounds fun um The judges at the Cotswold games are called sticklers, uh, which is where we get the word stickler, like (laughs) a stickler for details. Yeah. Yeah. Because they carried sticks to help like measure things. Oh, okay. Sticklers. Right. Everything about this is, sorry, I I just have to talk about this for a while. It sounds so
1: perfect.
0: (laughs) There's little tents with uh, chess and card games for like low stakes. Like you can wager. Nice. Um, There's lots of food there's this uh this temporary wooden castle that's erected for the day like to preside over the it's a renaissance fair
1: that's adorable
0: it's an actual renaissance fair (laughs) happening in actual renaissance times i love it so much that's
1: so perfect
0: like i'm expecting to find out that they're like making giant turkey legs to eat off the bone, or like they got jesters walking around or like some guy with a bugle announcing things it's 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 amazing. I love it so much. There's musicians wandering around with harps, and like it's it's it sounds really nice. And good news: if you wanted to, you could go to the Cotswold Games now <gasps> because it is still running. Yes. Um, there's been several hiatuses uh-huh. uh, for various reasons. Most of them, you know horrible things going on right but yeah it's it's been running um I, I think the current run has been going since the 1960s
1: so is it kind of like a festival now yeah
0: yeah there's there's they've added games like shin kicking
1: <laughs> amazing
0: which is where you take turns kicking each other in the shin until somebody gives up
1: that sounds hilarious is that like a strict thing like can you be drunk when you do
0: this or like i think it's encouraged amazing um, excellent and a game called dwile flonking what? Dwile flunking. Dwell flunking. Yeah, I had to read a lot about this. It's like a it's it's a it's a pub game that's been added over the years. I still don't understand the rules. One of the groups stands in the middle with like a wet rag that's been dipped in <laughs> beer, and the other group dances around. And, <laughs> like the, in the rules, you're supposed to find like the dumbest person there to be the judge. <laughs> Actually, it's wild. That's amazing. Let's go to the Cotswold games and chip in Chipping Camden and watch some Wild flunking. Yes. What is this? It sounds like some Dr. Zeus nonsense. Yeah. Anyways, I'm very excited that I learned about the Cotswold games. Yeah, that if you sounds take great. take one thing away from this discussion, <laughs> it should be that one.
1: If um, you have any listeners from England, maybe they can tell you about it. Like I would if love to been, hear if anybody's been. Yeah. That would be amazing. Yeah.
0: Um, I'm sure there's... I, I didn't have time to look up on, on YouTube if there's any like footage from... The current Cotswold Games. But Mm -hmm. the point is, they called it the Cotswold Olympic Games. They referred to themselves as Olympians. They saw this as in the spirit of the ancient Greeks. In fact, when when the 2012 Olympics happened in in London, the British Olympic Association referred to the Cotswold Games. Keep in mind, after all we've just talked about, (laughs) they called it the first stirrings of Britain's Olympic beginnings. (laughs) Amazing. Which, like, I feel is a little generous, but sure, you know what? Why not? Sure. Why not? (laughs) There's a lot of other kind of similar, but less like whimsical versions of the same story. People like trying to like start up their own Mm -hmm. Olympics, just which they're just using to kind of refer to any regularly held uh, sporting events. In 1796, uh, l'Olympiade de la République in France is uh, founded, this is like the middle of like uh, the French Revolution, where they're mm-hmm. like trying to discard everything uh, to do with the uh, the king and anything to do with the aristocracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're looking to the ancient world for inspiration. They're looking, as well as to like current Enlightenment thinkers. And a lot of what they're doing is is looking for like more democratic. Holidays for lack of a better term to right. fill this void that they're creating by stripping uh, the church and the aristocracy out of their lives completely because there's a lot of church and a lot of aristocracy in France right before the revolution. And so it's kind of mm-hmm. like, well, how do we mark our time um down to creating new calendars and and new systems of time, right? Mm-hmm. So they decide that they're going to try and recreate the ancient Olympics. It's actually the uh, the first time that metric system is used in sports. Oh. So there you oh, go. Interesting. Uh, it lasts all of two years before it's gone. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, the you know French Olympic Association would point to this as like a very like early sort of uh, inclination towards uh, Olympic spirit.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: in 1834 in uh, Ramlosa, Sweden, this revival that's uh, put on by a, a fencing and gymnastics instructor hmm. that he basically holds at a local horse club. And the problem here isn't like lack of interest, which is what kind of happened in France. And, you know, to be fair to France, they had some stuff going on in 1798. <laughs> yeah. And would for a couple of decades. Mm-hmm. Um the one in, in in Ramlosa is is actually too popular. It goes way too well. They do it again in eighteen thirty six. It gets too big for the uh, horse racing club that they hold it at, so they move it to Stockholm in eighteen forty three. Over twenty five thousand people show up. Wow, which is massive for this point in time. Yeah, um, like that's a that's a pretty sizable uh, uh, group of people. the The most popular event is this greased pole climbing event <laughs> where they have a ten meter pole. With like a a silver cup at Mm -hmm. the top. And it's whoever climbs to the top and gets it first wins and they win the cup. Mm -hmm. And when somebody finally gets up there and gets the cup, when they come down, the mob swarms them. And as far as anybody knows, the last they saw, some like little kid was running away with the cup. He had managed to snatch it. And it was just kind of like, we can't, we're not equipped to do this. This is too wild. Like we need some sort of boundaries here. And they never really figured out how to put it on properly after that. Mm. there's uh another there's several more in britain uh revival sort of uh attempts in uh 1862 to 1867 uh liverpool holds a grand olympic festival and this one is interesting in that it introduces a concept that we're going to be talking a lot more about today which is the concept of amateur contestants there's this really big idea about who should be allowed to participate in the Olympics. Mm -hmm. And it kind of comes from two different places. One is that in those ancient Olympics, there's this idea that all of the contestants are amateurs. That is, you don't have a soldier who practices with a spear all day competing in the javelin. Yeah, It's supposed to be people who are doing it because they have a natural affinity for it, both like they want to participate in it. And when they do, they find themselves good at it sort of thing. The other really strong influence here is sort of the concept of the um 19th century british gentleman amateur which is this idea of a you know a well-rounded english gentleman who mm-hmm. uh is is competent at a great many things but an expert in none of them who has sort of the time to devote to all of these different hobbies right um but enough that they can actually excel at them and there's this weird like middle ground there where they're saying on the one hand if you really love something, you should be able to find the time to really work at it, which, you know, isn't true of a lot of people in society, right? Especially at this point in time where you've got uh factory workers who are, you know, pulling twelve hour day seven yeah. days, seven a week. Right? I was gonna
1: say like this isn't like an eight hour, like nine to five Monday through Friday yeah, exactly. kind of society.
0: Exactly. Well and a lot of the the sports that these people are competing in, like say something like an equestrian sport. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you pay to maintain a horse and all the gear? Exactly. And you know, the lodging and everything and practice often enough to be competing at a fairly high level. Yeah. Without already coming from a, you know, a a place in life where you can actually, um, you know, basically do whatever you like.
1: Exactly. Um,
0: But on the flip side of this, they see anybody who's actually paid to do those sports as essentially cheating. Mm -hmm. like if you are a professional horse racer well you're not a true amateur you're not doing it for the love of the game
1: yeah it's not fair to like pit that person against someone who right like does not do that as their full-time job
0: right so i mean that's the root of amateur right yeah it's it's the the latin love right Mm -hmm. it's it's loving something it's Mm -hmm. doing it because you enjoy it but like there is this very like hard line drawn between somebody who It's basically you have never taken money for it or you have taken money to do sports. Yeah. And it's one or the other. And they don't distinguish at all between, say, for example, somebody who worked as a riding instructor but wants to compete in, I don't know, a foot race. Well, they took money to do a sport, which is in the Olympics now they're not an amateur. They shouldn't be allowed to run. That's not fair. And it gets like very harsh. Mm -hmm. And this is a thing that we're going to be talking about again, ongoing, because this idea of the amateur gets kind of caught in their brains a little bit. They hear that people in ancient Greece were amateurs and that they weren't, you know, paid athletes when they're going to the Olympics. And they think, great, they're just like us. Yeah. When the truth of it is when they get back to their hometowns, having won Uh, the crown at the Olympics what they're going to get is a lot of money Mm -hmm. like a lot of money and a lot of uh, uh, fame and they're going to basically have the ancient Greek version of endorsement deals out of it yeah like that's not exactly the same thing but yeah absolutely you've got places um paying Olympians to come and uh patronize their their business because then they can say that Olympians patronize their business yeah it's their face on a Wheaties box right like that's exactly what it was But they're very much ignoring the fact that like, no, payment was a part of Greek life. And, you know, the level that they're competing at isn't the sort of level that these gentlemen amateurs are looking at, you know, competing at. Right. So it's not it's not the same thing. Mm -hmm. That being said, these Liverpool Olympics where this sort of uh, amateur contestant requirement is imposed is going to become... Really, a model on which the first like modern Olympics that we talk about, like the International Olympic Committee mm-hmm. sanctioned, beginning in Athens in 1896, they're going to look to Liverpool for a lot of inspiration on how to organize everything. The rules that are put in place in Liverpool are going to be the uh, foundation of the or the or the framework for the uh, original International Olympic Charter. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the games that are set up there are going to be uh, an inspiration to the people who are organizing, uh, those Olympics. And so at first glance, fine, but, uh, you know, on further examination, a little bit insidious amateur yeah. requirement is going to carry through from these, uh, these Liverpool ones. Let's catch up with Greece because it's been a while since we <laughs> talked about them. It's one of those topics that like, I always struggled with finding a little bit more information about when I was a kid, because it's, one of those things that's just complicated enough mm-hmm. that it's not an easy like one sentence answer but it's kind of like hey what happened in greece between like the ancient times and like togas and like now yeah. because i know greece is a thing now mm-hmm. and i knew greece, greece was a thing then what happened the entire like 2000 mm-hmm. years in between there right and the answer is well it was more or less invaded and and uh ruled by somebody or other that whole time more or less um, it was invaded by the Romans in 146 BCE, conquered, and it was a Roman province for all of the ancient Rome that we ever talk about. Mm-hmm. And after that, it became part of the uh, the Eastern Roman Empire, or what we would call the Byzantine Empire. Mm-hmm. Then that gets conquered by the Ottomans. And then we get to the 1820s, and it's just been under all those people all all that time. And Greek culture and language has influenced all of these uh, larger empires that it's been under, but essentially it's not been its own country Mm -hmm. any of this time. And the fact that it managed to hang on to language and culture and things is actually quite remarkable for that length of time. Mm -hmm when you get to the 1820s or or you know shortly there uh, shortly before as well but a real sense of greek nationality comes up in, in in the late 1700s early 1800s where greece starts thinking of itself as an independent nation and wants an independent state to go along with that right and this is a time of of this is a time in history where one state per nation is kind of an idea that's getting a lot of traction where we're only a couple of years or a couple of decades away from you know, the the 1840s, like spring of nations type um, awakenings, modern conceptions of nationalism are running pretty hot at this point. Um, and what's more, the Ottoman Empire is in pretty shaky shape at this point. Mm-hmm. So in 1821, a, a war for Greek independence breaks out. And that goes for about nine years in which Russia and France, Britain even are supporting Greece Uh, or Greek independence fighters against the Ottoman Empire more because, well, for two reasons. Because they want to see the Ottoman Empire crumble. Mm -hmm. uh, And because they have a special place in their collective hearts for Greece, they see it as this forerunner of Western civilization, right? And Mm -hmm. so the idea that it's being held by anybody at all is bad enough. And the fact that it's being held by uh, the Ottomans, who they don't see as Western, is even worse. So... You have a, a an independent Greece uh, after about 1830 or so, and right away you start seeing attempts to kind of flesh out this idea of Greek uh, national uh, identity. And one of the first places they go to is suggestion of the revival of the Olympic Games. Uh, as early as 1833, you see proposals of, of bringing them back around. In 1856, uh, a, a very wealthy Greek national named Evangelos Zappas offers to fund a permanent revival of the Olympic Games in Greece. He basically writes uh the king and says like yeah, let's let's get this going. Mm-hmm. He funds the excavation of uh the Panathenaic Stadium in Athens which is a like it was built in 330 BCE. It's it's well over 2000 years old at this point. Mm-hmm. They dig the whole thing out and they restore it in marble. Wow. And it is beautiful. Like it's absolutely gorgeous. I've never seen anything like it. And they actually hold, uh, the Greek Olympics starting in 1859 in this stadium. Uh, and again in 1870 and again in 1875, there's, there's a number of instances of Greek Olympic games that are happening in the mid 19th century already. Mm -hmm. So what does any of this have to do with the 1896? Like this is the first Olympics as you know, we hear about it on the you know school projects and stuff right because Mm -hmm. we don't really talk about those little false starters right that all comes down to a guy named baron uh pierre de coubertin he's a french aristocrat uh he's very much a royalist Mm -hmm. uh he's a little bit down on his luck after you know france experimenting with uh republicanism but he's also got a lot of money and he really loves ancient greece He's also got this idea that physical education would be really important for preparing for war. Right. Uh, we're talking about uh, in the aftermath of the Franco-Prussian War in which uh, France is beaten quite badly and there's a lot of hurt national pride here. And he's one of those guys who just like, he feels like if the youth had just been like more athletic, we could have won this thing. Right. Like it comes down to just like fear. Of, like brute strength. F- yeah, and- physical gumption and you know, whatever. <laughs> like this is very much in that like, uh, 1920s progressive type ideas about health, you know, don't drink and get lots of fresh air. And, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, the, the link between the body and the mind, right? Like a healthy body is a healthy mind. Um, he, he's very much in that tradition. He believed that the Olympic formula of, you know, every four years having this truce and bringing people together from disparate parts of the, of the world was, uh, was, was one that encouraged peace. Um, there's not a lot of yeah, know, uh, uh, evidence for that, but that's what he thought it would do. Mm-hmm. Um, he believed that effort was its own reward, that it wasn't about winning. It was about showing up and doing your best, which is objectively not true about sports. <laughs> I don't know why people ever say yeah. that it's not true. It sucks to lose and it, it yeah. rules to win. Like that's just how it goes.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, he was one of these people that like we talked about earlier, believed that the Greek model was an endorsement of like true amateurs. Never get anything from what you do, amateurs. Right. Which was a misreading of the situation, as we said, but that was the ideal on which he decided to build the Olympic Games. He visited different games in Britain, in Greece, and uh, eventually in 1894 proposed the International Olympic Committee. The IOC would eventually be in charge of, like, it, they basically had the same mandate since 1894, which is planning and organizing the. The games, overseeing uh, national level Olympic committees, uh, deciding which uh, sports will be in, deciding what the host cities will be, all of the, the licensing, coordinating inter- international federations for various sports, things like that. Mm-hmm. So like the, the IOC both would oversee, say, the the French Olympic Committee, they would also have relationships with, for example, FIFA. Right, right. That, that oversees soccer worldwide. Yeah, and so they would work with uh, the French Olympic Committee to make sure all their athletes are on the same page. So make sure that they're you know using the accepted rules, things like that. Uh, are are sending athletes that match their guidelines, and they'd be working with FIFA to make sure that the rules that they're playing with at the Olympics would be uh, in line with uh, their uh, expectations for the sport. Yeah, so st- standardizing things as much as possible. When they met in 1894, he basically you know he. Uh, he met with the French Olympic committee, the British Olympic committee, a couple of other ones that were forming and encouraged a number of other nations to form their own Olympic committees. Mm -hmm. And originally what he wanted was in 1900 to hold the Olympics in Paris. Okay. Because he is French.
1: Yeah. Makes sense.
0: (laughs) In fact, he wanted all of the Olympics to be in Paris, but the idea proved so popular that they said, well, why not? Let's, let's just do it in 1896. We're ready to go. Mm -hmm. Uh, and why don't we do it in Athens? Because like, that's the birthplace of the Olympics and it'll be really cool. And we can use the stadium that's already yeah, built by the, the uh, marble stadium. Yeah. The, the one uh, that's been used for the Zappos Olympics. And um, you know, you have this, this really cool, like symbolic, like ties to the ancient world. And is not what we kind of want to do with this anyways. And Coubertin kind of said like, oh, fine, <laughs> but uh, second one we're going to do in Paris and we're going to like move it around every, every year. And They're they're thinking behind that because that's a big departure from the original light, right? Like having it in the same place all the time. Their stated thinking on this was like it exposes different athletes to like different places and different cultures around Mm -hmm. the world by holding it in different places. And also keeps any one place from like having a a monopoly on like the benefits that getting all these athletes together would hold.
1: Yeah, for their economy and tourism. Things like that, yeah. So that's kind of like the beginning of... Like holding the Olympic Games in different,
0: yeah, different it, cities and yeah, countries. It was, it, it, was, it was proposed from the beginning. However, it kind of comes across as though if it, the first one had been in Paris, coubertin probably would have advocated for always having it in one place, just like the ancient ones.
1: Yeah. He just
0: <laughs> wanted them in France.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: <laughs> so anyways, you know, the first, uh, the first Olympics, Athens 1896, 14 nations come, 241 participants. There's 43 different events in nine sports. Uh, the way that works is like events or disciplines come under like like broad sports headings. Okay. So like both diving and like swimming to race would mm-hmm. both be like under swimming sports right. or aquatic okay. sports. They'd be different disciplines under a, a single sport. No women were allowed to compete. Mm-hmm. Coubertin pointed to uh, the ancient Olympics where women were also not allowed to compete and went, "Why would we change anything?" If it's good for people 2,000 years ago, why not for us? Uh, His exact quote was allowing women to to participate would be, quote, impractical, uninteresting, unaesthetic, and incorrect. Wow, (laughs) rude. Cool guy. Several of those are just like factually incorrect. But anyways, yeah. yeah. Also, interestingly enough, the first uh, Olympics or IOC-sanctioned Olympics introduced the marathon, uh, which had not been a part of the old Olympics. The, the, The marathon is based on... story of after the battle of marathon uh this this Mm. soldier running all the way from marathon to athens to announce the victory which is about 25 miles or so which is about where we get the length of a marathon Um, so
1: they had races before mm -hmm. but they were like sprints or like track and field
0: yeah you get some events you get some like medium distance uh runs as well but nothing nothing close to marathon yeah marathons are one of those weird like kind of I think ancient people maybe just knew better. They're just like, I'm not going to do that to myself. Why would I? Uh, maybe they had. Yeah. Maybe they're onto something there. I'm not sure. Uh, but no, no, nobody was doing anything like that. Also, the again, the the distance of a marathon is so arbitrary. But right, this this kind of points back to some of the like artificially ancient stuff that they had going on with the olympics mm-hmm. right like this is a thing that the greeks did well no one greek guy did it yeah and he did it in the story and in the story he died <laughs> afterwards so <laughs> you know they, it's it's very much a, a picking and choosing of what historical things they want to keep and which ones they want to change yeah right so you know we, we want to keep only male athletes because that's how the ancients did it except they're okay with them competing in clothes now, apparently. So (laughs) what are we doing here? It's
1: kind of like a buffet of like historical facts or myths. And then just kind of selecting what fits your kind of goals and whatever.
0: Yeah. And I think think probably if you... We able to see inside Guertez' head he would probably think all of this was very, very consistent because he's viewing the Olympics through his own like lens of like
1: his bias of
0: yeah his well specifically his lens of of the gentleman amateur right mm-hmm. he he's picking and choosing the things that fit these values that he already had, and yeah. he kind of went, hey, the Olympics are kind of like this you know look at look at the ways those values line up with mine, and then anytime it just got inconvenient, he just sort of ignored it mm hmm there was a there was an opening ceremonies the Olympic hymn uh, which is a, a choral piece composed by uh, Spiridon Samaras for specifically for the Olympics the words are by a, a Greek poet Costas Palamas this is still done at the opening ceremonies today mm-hmm. interestingly enough though no Olympics between the very first one and 1960 used it oh they just put it aside for a while they came huh. back to it in 1960. So that's another thing that I find really interesting about the Olympics is there's all these things. It's like this is a tradition; we do it every time. It's like, right? No, they they they've been added over time. Was right? there
1: like a reason for putting that aside? Did they use like um, different music or
0: just? Yeah, usually different music. Like each each. Uh, well, first of all, we'll get to some that didn't have opening ceremonies at all. Mm. Um, and then yeah, different different places would compose their own music for it. Okay. And then they realized in 1960 that this one's actually really good. Like I'm, I'm sure if we played it, uh, you you would recognize it just fine. Mm-hmm. And they they just sort of stuck with it. These first Olympics, zero records were set at these Olympics. That's because they're in Greece. It's a really new thing, and generally the top performers in most of these sports didn't go. Right? Why would they? This is like the seventh Olympics or attempt at starting an Olympics. Who's to say that this one's going to be any better than any of the other ones, Mm -hmm. right? So the competitors are mainly people who could easily get there, honestly. Poorly organized. They didn't know how many spectators were going to come. A number of teams canceled last minute. They were going to have soccer, but all four soccer teams that were going to perform... (laughs) Didn't come. Oh no. They built an entire stadium for it and everything.
1: Did they like do a lot of advertising for the Olympics to try and draw an audience? I mean,
0: yes and no. Like, there's also a lot of other things going on here. Like, the IOC sort of stepped away from organization after a certain point because Mm -hmm. uh, Greek officials wanted to sort of take the lead on this one uh, and they kind of let them. It's kind of hard to get the word out there, right? Like, Mm -hmm. as much as they could, they left that to the National Olympic uh, committees. Mm
1: -hmm. And
0: a lot of these Olympic committees were brand new. So it was kind of like, Hey, who wants to go to Greece and run a hundred meter dash? Like, (laughs) yeah, I guess like if it's not that hard to get there, but yeah, uh, it seems like an awful lot of trouble. You know, they're not getting paid anything because there's a, you know, you, are supposed to love the struggle.
1: Yeah. Right. Sure.
0: Uh, there's, uh, athletes were expected to find their own lodgings and
1: like travel fees and everything. Everything. Yeah.
0: Everything. And and so, yeah, it's it's a little bit sloppy, but, you know, what, what first time at an event isn't, right? Yeah, for sure. The other thing in, in all of this is that, like, Greece was not terribly stable at this point in time. Greece itself was doing okay, but we're very close to that whole mess in the Balkans that's mm-hmm. going to start World War One. Right. Right in the neighborhood. A lot yeah. of people didn't want to travel there. Um, and there were a lot of concerns about... Even holding the Olympics there, whether or not it was a safe place oh, to be, yeah, um, and it turned out to be fine. But um, yeah, it, it, it was it was a concern. So the the Greek officials, um, after seeing how successful the first IOC Olympics were, they actually wanted to keep it there. They wanted to do the 1900 ones there too, and they said, "Listen, we've got the stadium. We've shown that we can organize it. It's only going to get better from here." Mm-hmm. Uh, we are the home of the Olympics for Greece. Like, yeah. what do you think? And Coubertin kind of went, Oh, sorry, we already selected Paris. Bye. <laughs> partially because of the stability, but partially because of, um, well, his own personal nationalism. So yeah. uh, he wanted to move it off to Paris. So uh, we've covered the ancient Olympics and we've covered uh, a number of revival uh, efforts, including one that. Uh, we now know is actually going to stick. Mm -hmm. So why don't we take a break here, and when we come back, we'll talk about, well, to begin with the 1900 Paris Olympics, because that is the craziest Olympics there (laughs) ever was, and I can't wait. Sounds good. Back on HI101, here with Yumiko Hutchinruther. Hello. And we've been talking about the Olympics. Mm -hmm. Specifically, we just finished up with the first Olympics. Yeah. Which... You know, all things considered, sounds a lot like the modern Olympics, or at least you can see the, the kind of straight line from that to what we have now. Yeah,
1: there's like the same kind of pattern mm-hmm. with the current ones.
0: Yeah, which is why I want to spend a little bit of time with the second Olympics, because the first one is is more or less business as usual. It's kind of exactly according to plan. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you kind of drew a line backwards, the second Olympics varies from this pattern so wildly that Coubertin himself basically said like, I can't believe there's still an Olympics after this Olympics (laughs) because things are going to go right off the rails. Oh, no. Now, remember, he wanted uh, all Olympics to be in uh, Paris, but especially this the second one. Right. One of the reasons he wanted it in Paris in 1900 was Paris was also hosting a World Expo. I'm not sure if you've come across these. They're not nearly as popular as they used to be, but generally a, a country or usually a specific city would host this like big world fair. Yes. And yeah. it would kind of yeah.
1: I actually went to one oh, in uh, Germany. Yeah, the 2000 World
0: Expo oh, in Hanover. Cool.
1: I think it was Hanover. It was somewhere in Germany. Sounds
0: about right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of the a lot of these older ones had themes like progress or like the city of tomorrow and things mm-hmm. like that, right? This would be where like you know, in the in the famous Chicago World Fair, like you know, Tesla is like yeah. demonstrating like alternating current electricity and all these things, right? Mm-hmm. The uh, the 1900 World Fair in Paris was again very much a like you know moving ahead into the 20th century type thing, mm-hmm. and Coubertin wanted to leverage some of the international prestige of the World Fair in uh, favor of the Olympics, like give it some of that extra boost. And so the IOC ended up working fairly closely with the um, planning committee of the Paris World Fair to try and uh, basically link the two events together. So, is doing this because, like, hey, this is going to bring attention. Mm-hmm. The director of the expo was going, like, this is ridiculous. We have a fair, the theme of which is, like, progress into the 20th century, and you want us to put on a, a demonstration of, like, ancient <laughs> games? Like, this is right. kind of, like... The going exact backwards opposite of what we're going for yeah exactly going backwards for sure and so i think a lot of his attitude towards it really comes through in how the next little while is going to go mm-hmm. coubertin had a lot of faith in the expo planning committee and basically left just about everything in their hands to plan this was this is going to turn out to be a really terrible idea <laughs> instead of the 16 days that the first olympics took mm-hmm. which is a pretty reasonable time frame that's that's fairly similar to two weeks
1: yeah a little little over over two weeks
0: that's that's pretty similar to what you would see now in an olympics right like it's it's yeah you know you get a couple of weekends in there that's Mm -hmm. it's a good amount of time yeah the second olympics took place from may 14th to october 28th what (laughs) yeah it was five and a half months long
1: oh my goodness
0: because that was the length of the the world fair there's no... Oh, yeah. I see. <laughs> they integrate all these events with the World Fair. So there's no opening ceremonies. There's oh, no okay. closing ceremonies, which the first one didn't actually have a closing ceremony either, but like there's nothing to kind of demarcate. Like bookend
1: the events. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: And the word Olympics was barely used at any of these events. A lot of this would be like, uh, you know, international rowing demonstration or oh. things like that. So... It's got this weird uh, uh, consequence, which is that not only did a lot of people who attended the 1900 uh, Paris Olympics not realize that they were watching the Olympics. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of athletes who competed in the 1900 Olympics that don't realize that they were (laughs) Olympic athletes.
1: Oh, no.
0: Instead of like the... um, In the first Olympics, they gave a silver medal for first place and a copper medal for second place. There was no third place medal. Um, In the 1900 Olympics, they're giving them uh, basically trophies. Yeah. Um, So they're not giving out like a a medal awards ceremony. They're not calling events Olympic events. There was confusion, for example, in archery. There were both Olympic archery events and non-Olympic archery events that took place under the umbrella of the World Fair.
1: That's so confusing.
0: So some of them are official. Some of them are not, at least from an Olympic perspective.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, we're we're only getting started on these oh ones. Oh, my God. <laughs> these, this is honestly like my favorite Olympics ever. <laughs> um, it's so fascinating to me. The planning was so poor from an athletic standpoint because, the, the you know, the planning committee has all this other stuff going on with the World Fair that, you know, something like how uh, a runner might think of the uh, the, the running conditions isn't mm-hmm. necessarily top of their mind. And so basically they hear track and field and go, perfect, we've got a field where they can do all of these. And all of the running, all of the track and field events actually are held on this like really uneven, like hard grass field.
1: Oh no. There's
0: no running track laid. It's like a recipe for a like a <laughs> twisted ankle. Yeah. There's like you know things are like rolling around off of like weird little bumps in oh the, in god. the field like it's it's terrible that sounds terrible the marathon course is extremely poorly marked so runners get lost during the marathon
1: oh no
0: it's also not cordoned off so there are runners that are dodging cars pedestrians uh one runner gets hit by a bicyclist oh my god it's it's absolute mayhem what's more It's really interesting. The American runner who ends up in fifth place comes in swearing that no one actually passed him at any point in the run. And the people who come in first through fourth show up with uh, no mud on their clothing, where oh, basically no. all the other runners have mud on their clothing. Yeah. And there are massive accusations of cheating, of taking shortcuts. Yeah. In fact, there's one accusation. They're, they're, there's somebody who claims that they saw several runners get into a car at one point <laughs> and get driven off. It's like, it's basically like the Michael Scott fun run. Yeah. It's exactly like that episode of The Office, except oh, this is real God. and it's at an Olympics. <gasps> Wow. It's insane. The cricket officials, they lose their official scorecard. So the only reason that we actually know the official uh, score of that game is because one of the the players, uh, on the winning side, by the way, mm-hmm. uh, kept their own scorecard through the game, like just as a something to do while they're not right. actually actively playing. So they had to like take this player's scorecard as the official record. That's wild. Fencing. This is This is a good one. Fencing was judged on style rather than actually points scored. <laughs> So it didn't actually really matter like how many touches. Style as in like flair. Yeah, it was judged like uh, gymnastics or uh, diving or oh. uh, you know something like that where it's like you know figure skating, like
1: ice dancing, yeah. or something
0: where it's literally judged on like how well did you do though, like how good <laughs> how good did you look out there? Oh my god! It doesn't matter how many points you touched. Like, do you
1: get points for like having a cool costume?
0: Uh, I would imagine that's pretty standardized, but again, I I can't really speak. I I can't say that for sure because it's the 1900 Paris Olympics and anything goes here. Yeah. No, it's more about like just how cool you look while fencing. Okay. Yeah. Um, That's not how you do fencing. (laughs) No. Shooting events were introduced already in the 1896 Olympics. It's part of that whole kind of upgrade to like modern version of the Olympics. It's like, well, if if the ancient Greeks were doing javelin throw, then, you know, uh, shooting competition is reasonable as sort of like that facsimile of a, a military event mm-hmm. today. But they expanded it fairly widely. They decided to put in a, a pigeon shooting event. Which they still have today with the, the clay pigeons, but they actually use live pigeons. Oh my god! So like you go to see a, a shooting event, and just all these guys blasting pigeons out of the air with shotguns—like that'd be so messy. Yeah, absolutely. No, it was horrible.
1: Did people have like umbrellas?
0: <laughs> I mean, they weren't—they <laughs> weren't under, they weren't under the pigeons. <laughs> like, they, that's not how that works at all. What else? I, like I'm, I'm just pitch, picking like my favorite points. I'm skipping so many things. Um, swimming events were held in the Seine, like the the river that flows mm-hmm. through Paris. Oh my god! Which again flows like
1: yeah, flows, like there's, like a, there's current. a current
0: to deal with. Yeah. Also, it's like extremely muddy. So, like, you couldn't see underwater what was going on, right? Like, you couldn't see the bank when you're coming up to it. Like, how shallow it got. Oh, no. Things like that. Instead of just, like, you know, building a pool. That sounds super dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. Um, They included an obstacle course in the swimming events. As in, like, you had to, like, swim down and, like, under, through things. Like, under boats and, like, through rings and stuff. Which, like, actually kind of sounds cool, but, like, maybe not in a river. Yeah. And maybe not in, like, an urban Like, in
1: a more controlled environment, that Mm -hmm. could be really fun to watch. Yeah. Like, Ultimate Beastmaster style.
0: Yeah, exactly. But,
1: like, (laughs) not in an actual river.
0: No, no, no. Uh, uh, Urban rivers are, like, famously filthy. Like, Mm -hmm. that's just disgusting. You know, there's there's a bunch of, like, non-standard events that are held only at the Paris Olympics that are never going to be held ever again that are, like, here's the thing the IOC has never actually gone on record as to like which of these events are officially Olympic and which ones are not. Mm -hmm. There's the ones that will show up on their like stats online, but like they haven't out and out, like they haven't like come out and said like these were not official Olympic events because the whole thing was such a mess that they can't really begin the task of like going through and like allowing or disallowing things. So some of the uh, non-standard events that they had at the 1900 Olympics included uh, fishing.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Ballooning, like hot air balloons. Hmm. Cannon shooting. Okay. Kite flying. Various motor races, including cars, motorcycles, and motorboats. Again, on the Seine, like (laughs) in the middle of all the other boat traffic. Um, Good. (laughs) And my personal favorite, pigeon racing which is where you train a homing pigeon to fly really fast. (laughs) And then you have to take it a set distance away from where it's going to go back to. And then you time it. I want that to still
1: be a thing. Like, I want to go to an event like that.
0: You have to see who trained the fastest pigeon.
1: (laughs) That would be hilarious.
0: I'm not sure how this, like, captures the Olympic spirit of, like... No,
1: absolutely. I have no idea how Higher, faster, stronger, right? Like,
0: Like, you know, pinnacle of human performance and all of that. (laughs) Like, it's just not, it's not at all. It's not at all. But like they held them at the 1900 Olympics and they were billed as Olympic events at this point in time.
1: So then like the pigeons should get the trophies because they're the ones working hard.
0: I mean, yeah, but that argument could also be made for all the equestrian events today, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not arguing against it. I'm just (laughs) saying it's kind of weird to involve animals. But anyways, yeah. I actually only just thought of this now. I never actually looked it up, but I wonder if they ever did like, like dog like obedience training like the the, yeah um what do they call it the obstacle course that they run yeah you know what i mean like running them through the little like like the best in show kind of thing yeah yeah, like 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 agility and like yeah yeah Yeah, agility training that's exactly what it is yeah um yeah i wonder if they've ever included that like this would be the one that they would include it at if they ever did Mm -hmm. but anyways Charlotte Cooper of uh, the United Kingdom was the uh, first woman to compete in the Olympics. She performed in uh, mixed doubles tennis. Nice. So already at the second Olympics, they're allowing female competitors. There isn't like really one moment necessarily where it's like, and now women are allowed in all events. Like each year, there's different like categories are Mm -hmm. adding events for women, but I I never really get the impression that the organizers are always that excited about it, to be honest with you. As I said earlier, Kubertan looked at these Olympics and basically went like, I think this might be the end of the Olympics. <laughs> <laughs> because it's strayed so far from what like, he's hoping that these Olympic games are going to be, right? Yeah. It's supposed to be like this event for its own sake, which it's lost complete, like, completely lost its identity, right? It's There's no Olympic games. It's just a thing happening at the Paris Expo. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the events that are included are just like... Not really in keeping with his like you know physical education makes a better rounded person and the the gentleman amateur and the you know preparing yourself for for life through 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 exercise and through sport and mm-hmm. bringing nations together like most of the people who compete at these Olympics are French just because mm-hmm. it's easiest to get to Paris if you're French there's you know there's one event uh, croquet actually. Um, which, yeah, they did croquet at the Olympics, um, (laughs) where literally all the medalists are French because all of the competitors are French and only one person shows up to see the event and he's French. (laughs) And like, it's a very like, it's not a very international Olympics for the most part.
1: This might be a dumb question, but like if athletes were competing or participating, but did not know if they were doing so as part of the Olympics or not, would they ever find out? Like if they won, and let's say they got a trophy, would that be the moment where they were like, oh, this was an Olympic game? And?
0: Um, that's a good question. I, I The IOC has gone back since, and kind of created standings. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a lot of cases, awarded things retroactively. But a, a lot of those are, are bronze medals, because they just weren't handing out third place uh, yeah. uh, in the first couple of Olympics. I'm not sure how many competitors would have necessarily, like, never known that they competed in the Olympics. Yeah. It's more just, like, whether they knew when they were getting into it.
1: Right, okay. is
0: a, is a different story. Um, it's it's entirely possible, though, that there's somebody whose standing's on the official, like, Olympics uh, uh, website. mm mm-hmm. um, it's entirely possible there's somebody on there that just never knew that they were an Olympian. It was a complete mess yeah. uh, from a from an organizational standpoint and from a branding standpoint.
1: Yeah, sounds like.
0: <laughs> and, and that's why I wanted to talk about it so much is it's kind of like, yeah, how, wait a minute, how did the Olympics get back on course, right?
1: Mm-hmm, like, how do you come back from that? Uh,
0: the next Olympics, 1904 in St. Louis. The bid for the third Olympics was actually granted to Chicago. Hmm. But. St. Louis had, well, the next World Fair. Uh, It was known as the Louisiana Purchase World Fair. And they were holding it in 1904. And when they lost the bid to Chicago, they basically went to the IOC, and the, the organizers of the World Fair, and said, You can put on the Olympics in Chicago. That's fine. That's your prerogative. But I just want you to know that if you do that, we are going to put on a a competing international sporting event at the World Fair, Mm. and we will dominate you, and no one is going to come to your thing. Oh. And it is a little bit wild to think about the IOC being in a position where somebody can bully them into... Moving a venue yeah. through a threat like that because can yeah, you that's imagine hard to somebody imagine
1: that happening today?
0: Somebody going and being like, "I know you want to put on the Olympics this weekend, but we're going to put on another <laughs> Just sport." Just FYI, <laughs> like, who would go to that now? Yeah, no one. Well, almost no one. We'll get to. Some stuff later. <laughs> But like it's it, it really speaks to how small the Olympics are mm-hmm. and how poorly known they are at, that, at this point, right? Because they're just one of a number of Olympic revivals. They don't really have a lot of clout uh, internationally, right? So the IOC basically gave in. They moved it to St. Louis and had a lot of the same issues as in Paris. Uh, again, it ran from July 1st to November 23rd. Oh my God. Like a really, really long time. And often not referred to as the Olympics at the Olympic events. Yeah. A lot less wacky events, unfortunately, but you know, what can you do? (laughs) Most of the participants, again, were from North America. You have this real travel problem early on in the Olympics where it's just like, why would I go, Mm -hmm. you know, like there's that question of like, really, why would I go to this? Like what's, what's in it for me as a, as an amateur athlete, especially when the whole ethos of the games is this whole, like, you're an amateur, you get nothing for this. You pay your own way. You pay, you know, you put yourself up independently. Um, and if you don't like that, don't come. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like, okay, well, yeah, the prestige isn't there yet to make that all worthwhile. Mm -hmm. Uh, you can claim that it is, but that's not something that you just manufacture out of thin air that's a that's a sort of earned respect Mm -hmm. and we're just not there yet this olympics did introduce the modern metal format but again in a lot of ways it's just struggling this is not a a format that's going to work for the games moving forward what gets the olympics back on track interestingly enough is a set of games that is no longer actually recognized as an official olympics by the ioc Hmm. remember in in the first part, we talked about Athens wanting to keep the games in Athens yeah. every every four years, right? Mm-hmm. Well, they were pretty upset about the Olympics going to Paris in 1900, and they were a little bit happy to see them not go terribly well <laughs> in Paris in 1900. Basically, they went to the IOC and went, okay, what about this? We will, you know, if you look at the if you look at the old Olympic Games, uh, there were games every year, not just every four years. Mm-hmm. So there there is a place for you know kind of rotating schedules a little more often. Right. Why don't we do this? We're going to start something called the uh, intercalated Games, which is a, a set of Olympic Games that is offset. Like it's still every four years, but it's offset from the you know official Olympics right. by two years. So every uh, every other year, you're going to have games. One set of rotating games is going to be in a different city every time, like the IOC wants. The other set is always going to be in Athens. Hmm. It's going to be a little bit smaller. We're going to use the same stadium, like, you know, but it's it's going to be like an official, like, Greek Olympics, mm-hmm. um, kind of harkening back to ancient times. And the IOC in 1901 basically said, okay, well, we'll give it a shot. Um, 1902 was too soon to start the games. Like they didn't have time to prepare Mm -hmm. within a year. So in 1906, the, uh, the first intercalated games takes place, um, actually branded as the second Olympic games because (laughs) the branding for 1900 and 1904 had gone so poorly. Yeah, It introduces a couple of new things to the games. One of the biggest ones is that up until now, Coubertin had been fairly, uh, adamant that, Athletes going to the games are there as individuals to compete. So mm-hmm. you aren't competing for your country. Right. You are competing as an individual person for um, your own prestige, renown, glory, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. In 1906, they decide to, uh, number one, switch back to a very short 11 day schedule. Number two, bring back the opening ceremonies and add closing ceremonies. Mm-hmm. And Number three, as part of the opening ceremonies, have athletes enter uh, grouped by their home nation Mm -hmm. to sort of highlight the international nature of the games was kind of the original uh, point of that. But people also loved it because it was like, yeah, people from my country are competing in this. My country won that. You start seeing that international like be- literal international between nations competitiveness that's still very much a part of the games today mm-hmm. and a lot of these things are kind of accidental but it ends up being like a much more successful games than what we saw at the world fairs and the IOC kind of takes a look at it in the aftermath and goes like okay maybe this is what we need to be striving for because 1896 went really well yeah 1906 went really well Clearly, there's something to this formula that works well that that uh, people enjoy. Yeah, you know, let's kind of stick with that. And so, 1908 is coming too soon uh, to switch over. It's still in a fairly bloated mm-hmm. uh, format, but you know, we're we're going to start doing like a smaller, tighter, more internationally highlighted games. Clear opening, clear closing. It's its own event. We're not going to tie it to anything. Mm-hmm. That's how we get people to pay attention. By the way, 1906 Olympics. Uh, is the first uh, time you see like a really blatant political protest in the Olympics. Mm. You have a uh, uh, an Irish athlete, Peter O'Connor, who Ireland isn't able to compete as an independent nation because Ireland right. is not an independent nation at this point in time. It's yeah. before the uh, Irish War of Independence. And so uh, he's being presented with a medal. He actually goes and climbs a flagpole to take down the Union Jack and fly the Irish flag Mm. while other Irish and American actually um, athletes stand around the the pole in a ring to like keep anyone from pulling them down until he manages to do it. And the IOC is just like horrified by this because Mm -hmm. the whole point of these games is like, oh, you know, peaceful competition politics out of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very much so. But that's not going to be a possibility for the games, even though they're gonna rail against it for a very long time. Mm Mm-hmm. The next little while, the games kind of settle into like this very calm, every four years schedule. Um, Not a whole lot goes off the rails for the next little while. And it very much ends up being like basically the games that we uh, would expect to see after about 1912 or so. Mm -hmm. Um, Really kind of standard events. Every once in a while, you get stuff in there that it's kind of like, oh, that's interesting. But, you know, even though they're not necessarily still done... You could see them coming back, maybe, or yeah. if they've disappeared, it's because like the sport's no longer done bef- anymore, right? For example, uh, at, at, around this time, uh, lacrosse would be a, 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 an Olympic event. R- right now, it doesn't qualify um, just because not enough uh, countries play it at, a, at an, a, an international level, right? But I can see lacrosse coming yeah. back. That would actually be a lot of fun to watch. Yeah, that'd be cool. Um, and there's definitely a place for it coming back in the future. I think the I think the requirement is that. Uh, 65 countries play it internationally. Okay, uh, and I think we were sitting at like 62 or something. Oh, last that's pretty close. It's pretty close, yeah. yeah. And there's a couple of different formats on on, on lacrosse that would make it like extremely watchable, mm-hmm. and it's such a fast game that I, I think it would I think it would do really well. Yeah. Then you also need like two thirds of the IOC to vote in favor of it. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of uh, we talked a little bit in the first part uh, of international federations for different sports who are under the IOC, but don't actually have their sport there because they're just not quite at the level of a, a, an international or a, an Olympic sport. Rather, mm-hmm. um, you mentioned uh, Tokyo in 2020. Mm-hmm. There's a few sports that have been out for a little while that are coming back that are going to be a pretty good time, actually, and a couple of first timers as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Karate is coming back. baseball's coming back. Um, What else? Surfing. I think that's new. Oh,
1: really? Surfing? Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah,
0: they're doing surfing. Uh, Rock climbing. A couple of different uh, sports under rock climbing. Some really cool new stuff. But they kind of sit at like a not quite Olympic level until they kind of get added back in, right? Or or added for the first time. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, all all the the sports that are different in this era are, are... Either something like lacrosse, which, as I said, could very easily come back in the next, you know, couple of Olympics, or there's there's a couple of games that, like, they try out, but they're just not really, like, they're just literally not played anymore. Like, there's a, I forget what it's called. There's a version of croquet that's played on, like, a hard surface that was, like, really oh. popular in in the U.S. at this point in time. Weird. Literally no one plays it anymore. Like, the, the International Federation for it uh, discontinued tournaments Uh, 10 or 12 years ago just because the people competing at an international level was in the Mm -hmm. single digits so it's kind of like yeah well this sport's kind of dead like there's some people that kind of keep it alive but that's never making it back in the olympics right it's just kind of over and then everything in between right but anyways i've got kind of notable i've got at least one fact from each olympics uh going forward from here um We'll, we'll kind of breeze through a lot of these because a lot of these Olympics, they just kind of go smoothly. They show up for a couple of weeks. Yeah. They do some games. They get some medals. <laughs> they go home. 1916, though, uh, the games are it, – it's actually the first time – well, it makes it sound like they were going for a long time. But in 1916, uh, they're canceled uh, mm-hmm. because of World War I. Uh, it was actually planned to be held in Berlin. Uh, oh. Yeah. Yeah. They were busy that day. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so – very early on already, like, war and politics and things like that are coming in the way, uh, you know, getting in yeah. the way of of the games, and it, it was kind of a, very much like a, well, do we go forward with this? There was actual discussion, like, do we go forward with this? And yeah. when you're talking about the ancient Greeks, like, yeah, you could still have like, a war on, and games happening somewhere, safely. Mm-hmm. When you get to, like, the 20th century and, like, total warfare, like, that's not really a possibility. Anybody in Berlin at this point in time is in reasonable danger of of being caught up in in actual combat in some form Mm -hmm. um so they they decide to just cancel it besides they're kind of going like well which which countries do we allow to compete yeah and as much as they want to keep those politics out you just kind of can't at that point yeah it's just not possible 1920 that's the first appearance of the olympic rings They've oh, been cool. created by Coubertin in 1913. They were supposed to make their de- their debut at the 1916 Olympics, but those were canceled. So mm-hmm. here we are. I was actually surprised how early those show up on the scene. A lot of the like symbology of the Olympics is actually pretty early on, which is kind of interesting. 1924 that's the first instance of the winter olympics Mm -hmm. there'd been a couple of demonstrations of a few winter sports earlier than this but this was the first time they kind of went look you just can't have figure skating in the middle of summer yeah this is not a time period where like (laughs) air-conditioned arenas are yeah a possibility so they decided to kind of split them up but at this point in time summer and winter olympics are taking place at the same time Mm -hmm. you would have it in two different locations one summer, one winter, within the same year. 1928, the Germans uh, make their first appearance at the Olympics since 1912. They'd been banned from uh, 1920 and 1924 Olympics due to the war. Mm -hmm. It's also the first time that the Olympics were sponsored by (laughs) Coca-Cola. It seems very early for that. Yeah, The uh, IOC really struggled against sponsorship deals and licensing and things like that, Mm -hmm. Um, really up until the 70s. Uh, They were really trying to maintain like this purity of the Olympic Games. Right. This is a thing where the way that the Olympics were founded and the ideals with with which they were founded really come into conflict with just the realities of 20th century class consciousness and and, uh, modernization and things like that. Because like you just kind of get to a spot where certain things cannot be uh financed and maintained in the same way. You don't have gentlemen amateurs willing to uh pay for their own uh sporting equipment because there really aren't any gentlemen amateurs left. That's not a mm-hmm. thing anymore. Mm-hmm. Um you know, but the Olympics are going to do their best to hang on to those those ideals as long as possible. Yeah. 1932 you get the first uh Olympic village, but um Participation is really, really low uh, due to the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. It's the lowest uh, for for a couple of decades at that point, just because people can't afford to come. Again, they're not yeah, being of supported there, right? Yeah. That brings us to 1936, which is the uh, Berlin Olympics. Mm-hmm. This is one of the famous ones, specifically because the Olympics were granted to Berlin. You know, the IOC picks the the host city usually six or seven years before the Olympics are held to give them a chance to prepare, basically. Yeah. The Olympics were granted to Berlin in 1930 as sort of a conciliatory gesture, right, Mm -hmm. over the uh, exclusion from uh, 1920 and 1924, and also kind of as a let's show the world that Germany is ready to perform on a world stage again kind of thing, right? It's supposed to be like a comeback tour. Mm -hmm. And then the Nazi party comes to power in the early 30s. Mm Mm-hmm. Between the time that Berlin is given the Olympic bid and the actual Olympics themselves, right, and this is extremely contentious, right? Because everybody kind of knows what the what what the Nazis are up to. <laughs> like there's there's, you know, the, obviously, some of the extents of their their war crimes throughout the war haven't occurred yet. But, like, They know the Nazi positions on basically anyone who's not white, on uh, Jewish people, and they're kind of going, is this really what we want to sort of tacitly support by allowing them to host the Olympics? Like, is that
1: really in alignment with Olympic values and the spirit of camaraderie and Mm -hmm. friendly competition and stuff like that?
0: Exactly, of keeping the politics out uh, out of the games. Meanwhile, the Nazi party newspaper is publishing these screeds that are like not you know not legally binding Mm -hmm. but are very very strongly suggesting that no jewish people or virtually anyone not white should be allowed to uh, participate they should all be excluded from the games and it's kind of like are we still okay with this though yeah (laughs) and it's it's difficult because the Nazi party is planning to use these Olympics basically to reinforce their claims about Aryan superiority. And it's kind of like, again, I don't know if I want to be a part of this necessarily, yeah. even though all I'm doing is showing up to like do some long jump or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, and it's a tricky position for athletes to be in because on one hand, there's uh, there's people who are going, well, if we don't show up. Like if nobody shows up, there's going to be an Olympics with basically only German athletes and they're going to use this for their propaganda. Yeah. On the other hand, there's people going like, I don't want to show up and support it. Yeah. A lot of countries end up sort of self-censoring, censoring censoring isn't the right word, but self-regulating attendance of Jewish athletes. Some because they're worried about potential trouble for those athletes, like keeping mm-hmm. them safe, keeping mm-hmm. them safe, uh, keeping them home to keep them safe, and some because it's essentially placating the Nazi Party, basically yeah. going like, "Well, yeah, they're not banned, but like we don't want to insult them by bringing Jewish uh, uh, athletes," and that re- results in really low uh, participation by German uh, by by Jewish athletes. Mm-hmm. I'm going to call out one. Particular instance of this by the uh, the U.S. Uh, Olympic Committee, the president being a, a man named Avery Brundage, because Brundage is going to be, end up being the uh, the president of the IOC mm-hmm. uh, later. So what what he sa- what he does it says here is is pretty important to our story. Basically, he supported uh, the Berlin Olympics, the hosting of the Olympics. Basically, said there are no pl- there is no place for politics in sport and yeah. we should ignore all of this stuff and just go and run our races and do our jumps and throw our things while at the same time pulling two jewish athletes from the uh, i believe it was the relay race team uh and basically saying like we'll just leave them home uh mm-hmm. so we just don't rock the boat because again politics and sports is not the same thing we'll leave them <laughs> it's it's this thing where i i think i think there are a lot of people who believe that politics has no place in sport. And I think that a lot of the people who say that don't have much to lose in terms of the way that sports are currently being uh, conducted. I think right. that, uh, I think that being a political is a political stance in and of itself. And, yeah. and Brundage is very much uh, an example of this happening in, in the 1930s. Right. Mm-hmm. Um. He, he's, you know, he's saying that he's uh, ignoring politics and, not rocking the boat, but at the same time, he's sort of passively reinforcing this discrimination against Jewish athletes. By keeping
1: Jewish athletes at home, that's still a statement and acknowledgement of, you Mm -hmm. know, the political climate at the time.
0: Mm -hmm. It's just no skin off his back, personally. Yeah. There's a very uh, famous incident that is sometimes poorly told at the 1936 Olympics. There's another U.S. athlete, uh, Jesse Owens, who uh, is black and does very very well at these olympics Mm -hmm. both in in sprint and long jump i believe and sometimes when this story is told it's told as though hitler specifically uh refuses to shake hands with jesse owens and that's not quite the case what happens is earlier in the olympics hitler had gone to attend a medal ceremony and only shook hands with the german athletes who had competed and refused to shake hands with anybody else who was there Hmm. And the president of the IOC at the time basically told him, hey, shake everybody's hand or don't shake anyone's hand. Yeah. And Hitler elected to shake no one's hand. So when he uh, was at the race that Owens won but dipped before shaking anybody's hand before the yeah. medal presentation, that wasn't necessarily directly uh Slight against Owens. In fact, uh, when Owens himself tells the story, he remembers Hitler meeting his eye line and and saluting him after the after the race. So he didn't personally see it as a slight. Right. What he did personally see as a slight was the fact that, unlike other Olympians, President Roosevelt did not invite him to the White House afterwards. Mm. He would often point to discrimination that he saw at home in the United States as worse than anything that he saw at the Olympics. Yeah. That being said, uh, wins by Owens and some uh, uh, Jewish athletes from Hungary, I believe, kind of punched a bit of a hole in the whole Aryan superiority narrative that the Nazis were trying to build around these Olympics. Mm-hmm. And so that that message got a little bit uh, uh, watered down, I think for the better and and kind of points to maybe leaving these people at home as a as an appeasement tactic maybe not being the best idea in retrospect right. You know, there's a couple other things you can say about these games. Uh, there's the, it, It's the first televised Olympic Games. Oh, cool. Um, more locally than internationally because yeah. t- TV is pretty new at this point. Yeah. Um, it was also very widely available by radio, though. And mm-hmm. so it starts getting more of like an international following during the games other than just kind of daily That's newspaper cool. reports. right? Uh, it's also the first time that the torch relay ceremony is held. Oh. The Olympic torch had been used previously a couple of times, but... You know, say what you will about the Nazis that had a flair for the dramatic. Mm-hmm. Um, they were fairly closely involved with the IOC to come up with this ceremony of lighting the uh, the flame. It's, it's basically the exact ceremony they use now. There's basically actors who act as uh, vestal virgins mm-hmm. uh, in, in Athens that, that light the uh, Olympic flame using a parabolic mirror from the sun and then carry it. Uh, as a relay all the way to where the games are being held. Well, the the, the 1936 Olympics are the first time that they do this, and it's now considered a pretty important part of the opening ceremonies. I, I think people would riot maybe if it wasn't, yeah. if it wasn't involved, right? Yeah, that's true. But uh, yeah, a lot going on at that one, and and I think the first kind of rumblings of not being able to keep some very real. World politics out of out of the games, mm-hmm. um, and some very difficult uh, decisions out of the IOC. 1940 and 1944 games, both again canceled by the Second World War. Mm-hmm. Uh, 1940 was supposed to be Tokyo, 1944 supposed to be London, but yeah, again, both canceled. So. When they come back in 1948, uh, it's given to Switzerland by the IOC, specifically because Switzerland was a neutral country throughout the war, and they figured that was the best way to avoid making some sort of statement based on the host city, because Mm -hmm. the selection of the host city is always kind of an inherently political act, right? Yeah. Um, You have bids from all these different places saying, like, we're worthy to host the games and as they've come up more and more in prestige over the last couple of decades um it becomes really important where they're held it's not just who can do this for us it's which one of these many people that want to do this for us yeah. will we allowed to allow to host it right mm-hmm. that being said the official line of the IOC is still like, nope, we're staying out of politics. This has nothing to do with real world stuff. This is just about the games. This is about international fraternity. And it's kind of like, how do you maintain that after the second world war? Yeah. Even after the war is finished and and fairly decisively, you know, decided you have uh, the beginnings of the cold war here, right? Like Mm -hmm. the world is very, very fractured at this point in time. How do you just go on pretending it's not? Yeah, you can't really
1: ignore that.
0: Yeah. 1952 is actually the first participation by the Soviet Union. They hadn't been to the Games since before. Uh, I believe 1912 would have been their last one. Mm-hmm. Uh, Russian Revolution in 1917. Right. They didn't come back to any of the, uh, the Games as the Soviet Union. They actually held their own uh, within the Eastern Bloc Games <laughs> as like a, as like a uh, rival Games sort of thing. Uh, interesting you know, for for the workers for the people kind yeah. of thing and and uh yeah it had never really amounted to all that much but they had actually spent the last couple of olympics well specifically the 1948 olympics sending observers from their like various sporting bodies to observe the olympics and see whether or not they thought their athletes would be able to compete at hmm. a, an international level and in 1952 they decided that yeah they could make a go of it Immediately this starts being framed ideologically by the Soviet Union. Yeah. Any victory by a Soviet athlete is touted as a victory of socialism over capitalism. It is the superiority of the Soviet system. But
1: politics have nothing to do with <laughs> Right, exactly. The IOC
0: hated it, but like what are they gonna do about it, right? Yeah. Um they only have so much power. Are they gonna kick the, the Soviet Union out of the games? And well,
1: then that, that would, be, would a... be a political statement. Exactly. Yeah, like you're damned if you do, you're damned
0: if you don't. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's a it's a terrible position for them to be in while maintaining this supposedly apolitical stance. So yeah. they just kind of let them keep doing it. And what's discovered fairly early on is that the Soviets have absolutely no qualms about completely ignoring the spirit of amateurism, which is still very much upheld by the IOC. Right Now, they're not directly paying people to train as athletes, but what they are doing is basically putting them on i mean it's not welfare because it's a socialist system but Mm -hmm. essentially paying for their room and board while allowing them to train full-time as athletes Mm -hmm. which on the flip side you know there there are there are instances in in earlier olympics where people are we talked about this a bit where people are found to have made a little bit of money in a different sport and are being disqualified right but because they're not being directly paid to do these sports, they're not technically violating the amateur right. uh, rules. And so, you know, you have people in the West that are crying foul over all of this, mm-hmm. saying it's unfair. And the Soviets going, what? We're not breaking the rules. This is fine. Yeah. Also, Soviet athletes are the best in the world. So <laughs> suck it. It's it's a sore point for a very long time. Yeah. 1956 is the first time that the Olympics are broadcast on TV internationally. It becomes kind of appointment viewing; like everybody's like glued to the TV. It's it's very yeah. good TV, and there's a lot of crisis of conscience around all of this. Mm. Um, this is the first year that uh, Avery Brundage uh, is now the uh, the president of the IOC, and I mean this is a, this is a man who was unwilling to stand up to uh, the Nazis when it came to the Olympic Games. Something like uh, TV broadcast rights. He has absolutely no qualms saying, "Like this is not our 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 organization is not about making money. The second we start handling money, even if it is just to pass out, mm-hmm. like we're going to have real trouble on our hands." So he doesn't want advertising. He doesn't want you know they're they're kind of doing the licensing broadcast or yeah. broadcast licensing uh, stuff out of necessity, but like he's really upset about the whole thing. He doesn't want the Olympic Games sponsored by, right? He doesn't want any of that stuff going on. That being said, the televisation of the games really raises uh the international profile of it because Mm -hmm. again it's one thing to like read like oh great you know the the germans took the gold medal in Mm -hmm. ski jumping
1: but to actually watch it happen is a completely different different experience
0: absolutely yeah and also to some extent as much as uh a T- you know, a new technology like this can democratizes the games because it's not mm-hmm. just people who can afford to travel and pay tickets to see it.
1: Yeah, that's true.
0: It's people, who, it's anyone who can afford a TV or who knows somebody who can afford a TV can see what's happening.
1: It's much more accessible that way.
0: Mm-hmm. In 1960, uh, Abebe Bakila of Ethiopia becomes the first black African to win a gold medal. Mm-hmm. He runs the marathon barefoot. Wow. And wins a gold medal. This is kind of the first Olympics and not quite the first Olympics, but it's the first Olympics where African countries start showing up uh, in a high profile way. And this is kind of coinciding with the, quote-unquote decolonization of Africa you have all these new uh nations that are uh, that that have declared independence after World War II that are beginning to field athletes on their own and it turns out that uh East African athletes tend to do really really well at these long distance runs and they're going to dominate the sport for the next little while yeah this is kind of where you get that idea of like oh you know Ethiopia always wins or Kenya always wins the marathon right Mm -hmm. it's um it stems from from uh, these games where these nations show up in a big way. That being said, again, this is not an apolitical thing, right? Because mm-hmm. you have these nations competing against uh, other nations that until very recently held them under their thumb uh, through the colonial system, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a, there's a significant amount of, of friction between them. Uh, what's more, with everything that's going on in South Africa and Rhodesia in regards to apartheid... Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of these African nations have really strong feelings about uh, competing side by side with those uh, with those uh, white minority dominated yeah. countries.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: Just one more piece of friction in, in, in this whole machine. Right. Yeah.
1: Affecting sportsmanship and mm-hmm. all of that.
0: 1964 uh, is back to Tokyo. Um the first Shinkansen uh, bullet train is completed nine days before the Olympics open.
1: Wow <laughs> between
0: Osaka and and uh, uh, Tokyo.
1: That's awesome.
0: Um, this uh, Olympics, following with the uh, the theme of the 1960s of, of decolonization of Africa, at the opening ceremonies, Northern Rhodesia walks in carrying, you know, their, their placard saying Mm -hmm. Northern Rhodesia, uh, they're the only country to carry a placard at these closing ceremonies because the day of the closing ceremony, Northern Rhodesia manages to declare independence from Rhodesia and they, uh, leave the Olympic games as Zambia. Wow. Which is really cool. That's
1: really cool. I Mm -hmm. didn't know that at the winter
0: Olympics that year Innsbruck, uh, Austria almost doesn't have snow, (laughs) <laughs> the, the military had to go up into the mountains and uh, fill sledgefuls of snow oh, to bring wow. them down to where all the sports were being held.
1: Oh, my God. <laughs>
0: 1968. Uh, oh, first drug testing. Mm. This is where doping starts becoming... Well, I, I mean... Doping refers to a very specific thing. This is where substance uh, enhancement starts becoming a real concern in the Olympics. There was actually a death in 1960. A, a cyclist uh, died while, while racing, mm. and it was found that he had amphetamines in his system. Between this and other sporting scandals uh, regarding performance-enhancing drugs, the Olympics decided, like, yeah, we have to start testing for this stuff. Because, yeah. again, in, 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 in the interest of fairness, it's kind of like, well, if one athlete is competing clean and another one isn't of course this isn't a it's not a level. fair race yeah exactly the uh the first disqualification comes the exact same year there's a, a swedish pentathlete who drank several beers before competing um part of the pentathlon the modern pentathlon is is a shooting segment okay and al- alcohol is a muscle relaxant it helps steady yeah. fine motor control uh muscles so it actually makes shooting a little bit uh easier i i kind of mm. I I thought it was a little weird when I first saw it too. Yeah, that seems counter. It's the it's the shooting uh, component. Alcohol is still a a prohibited substance in uh, marksmanship um, competitions to this day. Right. Yeah. This is another Olympics where you see sort of national level politics entering in, and really kind of flustering the IOC at the 200 meter uh, race. Both the first place finisher, Tommy Smith, and the third place finisher, John Carlos, are black American athletes. Mm -hmm. And when they get up on the podium, when they're being given their medals, they both put up a black power salute.
2: You know, mm-hmm. clenched
0: fists raised above your head, yeah, in reference to everything going on with the civil rights movement in the United States. they they were both part of uh, an organization called the Olympic Project for Human Rights, which was basically like, hey, if we're going to talk about like equality and fraternity and things like that, maybe we should be looking at the countries that are sending athletes mm-hmm. and what their human rights records are like because, yeah because you know, maybe that's maybe that's something we should be considering here. If we're going to be gi- giving people international glory, we should be looking at whether or not there are some sort of bottom-of-the-barrel qualifications in terms of their civil rights or their, their human rights records and whether or not that should be considered in um, not just host, host cities and things like that, but but participation at all. Mm-hmm. Both athletes will be ejected from the, the Olympics uh, at the orders of uh, Avery Brundage. Oh. There was the second-place finisher, uh, Peter Norman from Australia, Uh, who was white, he did not put up the salute, but he was also wearing an Olympic Project for Human Rights badge. Uh, He was not ejected.
1: Interesting.
0: Very interesting. Brundage is losing it here. Like, he's losing control of the Olympics. Yeah. You can't claim to be apolitical and then eject people for political beliefs. That's not how... Yeah. That That's no longer apolitical. It's it's politics in the guise of being yeah. apolitical, right? Yeah. It's, it's uh, holding the status quo in the name You're still making of civility. a stance, and
1: you're still making a statement.
0: Mm-hmm. We're, uh, we get to 1972. This is the, the Munich uh, Games. And the decision to host in Munich was a little bit of a fraught one because this is the first time the Games are returning to Germany mm-hmm. since the Second World War. And the last time uh, an Olympic Games was, was hosted in Germany. It was the 1936 Nazi Olympics. Yeah. And the IOC is very, very mindful of that history. Mm -hmm. A lot of stuff is done in the interest of downplaying that imagery and that history, including security being like very deliberately downplayed, um, demilitarized, uh, uh, hidden away a little bit. Like, it's a lot less like, hey, that's a security guard mm-hmm. and more like, well, there's, you know, guys in whatever color windbreakers. If you have a problem, go talk to yeah. them. Which, you know, it, it, on one hand isn't necessarily the worst thing. On the other hand, does actually have a real impact on security. Like, you know, as much as you might not like to admit it, the optics of security are are important to security, right?
1: Yep, for sure.
0: However, it also made security very unwilling to really do that much about situations to the point of like not necessarily wanting to drill for potential crises that might come up one such crisis that they they raised as a possibility and you know this is unconfirmed but some people have speculated they might have been tipped off to Mm -hmm. was the fact that um israel who is now sending their own athletes um as you know an independent nation yeah their athletes are being kept in like one of the Olympic village compounds closest to the gates that are not terribly well hmm. uh, well uh, guarded. And this is a, a time, I mean, most times since the foundation of Israel, this has been true, but this is a time where resistance by uh, Palestinians was especially fierce. And um, this is kind of the height of the, the PLO, right? Like the Palestinian yeah. Liberation Organization. Yeah. And it was kind of like, well, should we be putting them in a more secure location? Should we be uh, making sure they have extra security? And it's kind of like, no, we don't want to have a bunch of guys with guns standing around sort of thing. Right. Until like the the worst possible thing comes around, comes around this, this uh, terrorist group, this this Palestinian terrorist group called Black September manages to break into the Olympic village and they actually take 11 Israeli athletes and uh, coaches uh, hostage. They end up killing two before they get them out of the Olympic village at all. Oh, wow. And
1: That's terrifying.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, there were athletes from another country, I think it's Uruguay, were in the same building, and the, the terrorists let them go. They were specifically targeting Israeli athletes. Israeli athletes, athletes. Yep. yeah. So they took nine hostages out with them. Um, their demands included the release of over 200 uh, Palestinian prisoners, uh, as well as a number of other demands, which Israel was completely unwilling to allow. They had a no negotiations with terrorists policy at this point in time. Yeah. This is a big problem for Germany at this point for a number of reasons. Number of, number one, this is supposed to be the games that kind of clean up your image after World War II and you just had yeah. 11 uh, Jewish athletes and coaches kidnapped from under your nose. Yeah. Number two, I mean, even... Even the original like SWAT teams, mm-hmm. uh, which were developed in Los Angeles, are only a couple years old at this point.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: German police are not equipped to handle a situation like this, and the German constitution, as it exists after World War II, explicitly forbids German military action within Germany. There's there's significant um, uh, restrictions on what the German military can do. Right. So you have. Uh, an under-equipped, under-trained police force who's tasked to uh, clean up the situation, which they're completely uh, unable to do.
1: Yeah, that's a that's not a good recipe.
0: After negotiations with Israel break down, um, the terrorists negotiate. There, there's there's eight of them. Uh, they negotiate basically for passage to Cairo. They want a plane uh, and, and, a, and a crew. The German police attempt an ambush. Mm-hmm. There's bad communication, there's bad equipment, there's bad training, everything goes horribly wrong and it ends in a uh, firefight between the German police and the terrorists. All of the hostages are killed. One of the officers, one of the police officers is killed and five of the eight hijackers are killed in the fight. Three of them. Three of them are captured, put in jail. Eventually they'll be traded for other political prisoners, like negotiated with Palestine.
1: That's terrible.
0: Brundage refused to delay the games. He barely acknowledged the attacks. Uh, At one point, he compared the terrorist attack on uh, on the Israeli athletes to critics who were, uh, quote-unquote, attacking his firm belief in amateurism in the Olympic Games. Are you
1: serious?
0: Yeah. (sighs) He was already under fire for his handling of uh, Rhodesia, refusing to... I I mean, he he eventually got talked into... uh, refusing Rhodesia entry into the 72 Olympics based on apartheid, but, you know, this is a guy who's saying that, you know, things like apartheid or all of these other things that he's, he's run into over his career are not, you know, those aren't important. What matters is the games. The games have nothing to do with politics Mm -hmm. and it's just, it's not, it's not true. Like there's no... Sports, sports is not apolitical. Nothing is apolitical. And and as much as you might want it to be, it's, it's just not. And yeah. he was a man who could never quite wrap his head around that. It never... I, I don't know if it never affected him directly enough. I don't know if he was just not empathetic enough. I don't know if maybe he was just desperate to keep sports this really pure thing, right? Like, I, I don't know where that's yeah, coming from. Like trying
1: but- to choose a certain amount of ignorance to it.
0: Yeah, but but he tried he tried so hard to do that. And I, I'm not sure he ever really understood the many, many criticisms against him. Yeah, throughout all of this. And the the 72 Olympic Games would be uh, his last as president of the IOC. It was already voted before the Olympics that it would be his last and he'd be replaced with another mm-hmm. uh, president. Um, he was extremely unhappy about it. Um, mm-hmm. but he would end up dying just a few years later. So it, it would have been his his last either way. But I, I think he really left the post not understanding yeah. um, how much the world had changed in the past 30, 40 years. Yeah. Uh, and and he, he just really failed to keep up with it and had failed to uh, modernize the Olympics in a way that could keep up with that.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: So the Olympics as, a, as an institution has really dragged... Uh, kicking and screaming into the modern era Mm -hmm. with all these, with all these really important issues kind of dragging it along. Right. Like it's Mm -hmm. just, it's, you can't, you can't ignore it at all. Um, Not with the cold war, not with the decolonization of Africa, not with uh, the creation of Israel and the situation in the middle East.
1: Yeah. There's, there's way too much going on in the world and it's too complicated to just completely ignore that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the situation with the Munich massacre which is what this this event would be called would actually lead to escalated Israeli uh, attacks on Palestine. Like it, it led to actual like real, real
1: world consequences.
0: Escalated military conflict. Like it's not it's not a bubble. It doesn't. Yeah. You know, it doesn't exist uh, in this vacuum where you can just go, yay, sports. Mm-hmm. That's not how the world works. Yeah. The Olympics are never free of this, even even under his reign, you know, as early as like 1936, the Republic of Ireland boycotts due to lack of uh, North Irish independence, Mm -hmm. right? 1952, Taiwan uh, boycotts due to the IOC's recognition of China. Mm -hmm. In 1956, vice versa, China boycotts due to the IOC's recognition of Taiwan. 1956, there's boycotts over the Suez crisis. Mm -hmm. There's boycotts over the Hungarian revolution, even though Hungary itself participates because they were crushed in this revolution so yeah. other countries boycotted on their behalf 76 the uh, the the Montreal Olympics mm-hmm. you know again you have China boycotting or sorry Taiwan boycotting over China you have uh 22 African nations end up boycotting over essentially they wanted the New Zealand uh, athletes banned from participating because the New Zealand rugby team had just gone on this huge tour of South Africa mm-hmm. and the kind of the line from the IOC as well. Rugby is not an Olympic sport, so doesn't right. really matter. But that tour was big news at that point in time. Like you, yeah. like anyone who was going to South Africa and it's not just uh, uh, sports stars, it's musicians, it's, it's celebrities, it's whoever, mm-hmm. anybody going to South Africa is getting boycotted because of the situation with apartheid. Mm-hmm. Um, 1980s Olympics is held in Moscow. It's boycotted by fifty-seven countries, led wow. by the United States, because it's being held in a in a communist nation. Yep. Uh, Nineteen eighty-four, it's held in L.A., so the the Eastern Bloc countries boycott it. Don't go. Yeah. There's, you know, there's quite a bit fewer countries. It's only fourteen, but they hold their alternative friendship games at the same time, and <laughs> nobody goes to it. Yeah, it's it's just never free of scandal, right? Yeah professional amateurs, this whole Soviet thing just kind of comes back around with their, their athletes frequently dominating because they're essentially professional athletes that are just not getting paid directly. Right.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And there's all of these countries who are going like, we can't field our best athletes because they've taken money at some point in their career. You know, the 1936 Olympics, there were Austrian and Swiss skiers that just didn't go because their ski instructors couldn't join. Like right. the, the people who had trained them to be Olympians couldn't attend the Olympics because they were paid ski instructors. Yeah. Like it's such a hard line and it seems so unfair when you're up against that. Yeah. Right. 1960s, the, the Canadian hockey team basically went like, we can't win this anymore mm-hmm. because all of our best hockey players are going to the NHL. Yeah. So how do you feel? They're that, getting
1: paid now. Like, yeah. How,
0: how do you feel an amateur team that can compete at a world level yeah. when everybody else is sending all their best Players to Olympic training team uh, training squads and not paying them anything directly, at least. Mm-hmm. In, in 1970, they tried to get nine pro players who were not NHL but like had taken money at some point onto mm-hmm. the team, and Brundage threatened to remove ice hockey from the Olympics. Full stop. Wow, like he was ruthless about it. Yeah, that's that's pretty harsh. This actually leads to the 1972 Summit Series, by the way. Which is uh, an eight-game series between the Soviet Union and Canada that takes place in 1972. Um, (laughs) You know, I have spoken to people who have unironically told me that it played a part in ending the Cold War, which is completely untrue. But um, there's there's a whole generation of Canadians who grew up watching that game on TV, like it was. The be all and end all right and the whole point of that was to show like yes we can beat the soviets at hockey <laughs> if we let our best players play yeah. but we can't do that in, at an olympic level yeah right the NH- nhl players wouldn't be allowed until 1988 when restrictions on amateur players are finally removed from all of the olympics professional players are now allowed to play depending on the regulations by the international federations of that sport
1: mm-hmm
0: we talked a little bit about performance-enhancing drugs. It was rampant in the Soviet competitors, especially. Yeah. The, the the 1980s Olympics in Moscow were dubbed by somebody as the chemist Olympics. <laughs> um, it, 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 these studies came out of, of the, the blood tests from these athletes afterwards. I, I was reading one from an Australian uh, scientist who basically said basically any... Soviet athlete who medaled, and mm-hmm. certainly every Soviet athlete who won gold was using some sort of per- performance-enhancing drug, probably more than one. Yeah, like not not contentious. Like this is what, like happened. statistically, yeah. yeah. Famously in 1988, Ben Johnson, uh, Canadian mm-hmm. runner, won uh, 100 meter gold, uh, 100 meter sprint gold, uh, had his medal uh, stripped from him for using steroids. Yeah, it's you know, it's it's everybody was doing it, and and. Yeah, every Olympics, somebody gets something Yeah, someone taken. gets busted for it. Remember in the 98 Olympics when they put in snowboarding and <laughs> uh, Canadian won the first gold, Ross Verbigliotti? Oh, and yeah. And then he tested for marijuana and they took his medal away and then everyone <laughs> was like, but he did it while he was on marijuana. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How is that making anything better? Anyways, yeah, it's true. It's like almost up, more impressive. He ended up getting his medal back, actually. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, but for a while, like it was taken away from him anyways. Um, Oh man. Yeah. Judging scandals, right? Yeah, Like, I, you know, we're not going to go through anything. Boxing is especially bad.
1: Yeah. Uh, skating is really skating, bad for, yeah, for judging scandals.
0: There's been plenty of uh, recommendations over the years that maybe we should just remove judge sports altogether. Mm-hmm. It's become like a bad joke, right? Like mm-hmm. figure skating. It, the, the, the joke is always the French judge at figure skating, right? Yep. Like, Always. <laughs> but there's there's anything that's judged is is really open to some real corruption, right? Because mm-hmm. it's a subjective thing and like I, I don't know how you regulate that well. There's lots of guidelines in place. They they try really hard to make it work, but
2: mm-hmm.
0: you know, at the end of the day you're subjectively assigning a score for how good you think something was and yeah, mm-hmm. it's gonna vary. In uh, in nineteen ninety-one all new events were required to submit both male and female events. As I said a little bit earlier, you know things get better and better as we go along. But mm-hmm. in general, the Olympics has not been terribly friendly to female athletes.
1: You said 1991.
0: 1991, yeah. Oh, but that's new events. Anything existing didn't necessarily had to add, had to add have to add anything. Mm-hmm. There's still a couple of events. Um, actually, that's not true. In, in the Summer Olympics, uh, women can compete at any. In any Olympic event that men can compete in. Mm -hmm. In the Winter Olympics, there's still one sport uh, called Nordic Combined, which is both downhill and ski jumping, Mm. uh, that there isn't a uh, women's event. Right. Um, There's actually two events where there isn't a a men's event. Uh, Synchronized swimming and rhythmic gymnastics. Mm -hmm. The cost to host cities is a big issue, right?
1: Yeah, for sure
0: that whole rotating thing uh set up very early on you know the idea was to spread cultural exposure which in mm-hmm. a modern world becomes a little bit less dependent on making athletes physically travel to a place mm-hmm. it was supposed to increase the or boost the economy of the hosting city which we're finding more and more is not always necessarily the case. In the 1976 uh, Olympics in Montreal, uh, the mayor of Montreal, uh, Jean Drapeau, famously said that the city could no longer, or could no more lose money than a man can have a baby.
1: Hmm.
0: The city ended up $1.5 billion in debt. Oh, wow. Uh, They didn't pay it off until 2006. And uh, Quebecers very fondly referred to uh, Drapeau as uh, the only pregnant man for a very long time. (laughs) You know, I I, I kind of hammered on Brundage for most of this second half, but he's not the only bad IOC president either. Mm-hmm. Um, Juan Samarach, who was uh, IOC president from 1980 to 2001, famously corrupt, took so many bribes. Yeah, it was so bad that in 2002, an IOC member blew the whistle on them, saying that like there's a lot of bribes paid to get it to Salt Lake City. Wow. And here's the thing: it wasn't actually illegal.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It was just ethically dubious, right? right. It was kind of like the number of gifts that were given to these specific officials yeah. seemed really high. And they started digging back in the books. And it was discovered that for the Nagano b- bid in 1998,
2: mm-hmm.
0: we don't know the exact amount of money, but the city spent between 4 and $14 million just wow. on entertaining IOC officials.
1: Oh, my goodness.
0: Before the bid was given. Now, we don't know the number because IOC asked the city to destroy the records of how much was paid, Wow, which is not a thing you do when you think you've done nothing wrong. No, exactly. He was uh, removed in 2001 due to all these bits Mm -hmm. or all these uh, uh, bribes, rather. So the Olympics, (laughs) good or bad? I mean, like, I think that there are certainly things that come out over time that it's kind of like, well, maybe they could be changed again. Maybe it's time for a little bit of a spruce up, right? Because after, after Brundage leaves... Uh, and you start getting a little bit more political awareness out of the games. Mm-hmm. You get uh, a few more, uh, you know, ejections for bad behavior. You get uh, a little bit more of an acceptance of uh, licensing, for example. Yeah, they start actually trying to make some money off of off of all of this. The Olympics get more and more popular.
1: Yeah, uh, more absolutely. And more people see
0: them. The prestige gets higher. But like it enters a whole new set of problems, right? I mean, for the host city, the reason that they're, or one of the reasons they're losing money is that licensing rights go to the IOC, uh, tickets to the Olympics go to the IOC, broadcast rights go to the IOC, who pays all of the infrastructure for all the stadiums that go in, who uh, bears the brunt of, you know, the increased strain on public transit, on, Mm -hmm. on businesses, the host city, the IOC pays none of that. Yeah. And so like, is this a good deal for host cities? Maybe not. Maybe the Olympics would be better served at having a couple of rotated uh, uh, locations that participating nations all pay into accordingly there's been proposals regarding performance enhancing drugs have two different versions of the olympics one clean one whatever you want to use i've heard as a <laughs> kind of half joke but kind of half serious proposal right you know, like how do we but like how do we how do we get around all these doping scandals right yeah this is this is hi 101 so we don't go too modern but like the everything going on with the russian doping scandals in 2012 like that was a big deal the last couple of olympics right yeah
1: definitely um
0: they're clearly not stopping. Like people are going to keep trying things just like 2000 years ago, people were trying things at the ancient Olympics. People are always going to try things. How do you get ahead of that?
1: Yeah, those are big questions.
0: It's a lot of stuff to figure out. And, and, you know, the Olympics are a prestigious enough organization that they need to figure out a good response to it because the alternative is this Brundage tenure of sticking your head in the sand and pretending like Mm -hmm. politics don't matter. That sport is its own reward. Like all of these nations aren't going home and, you know, sticking other countries' noses in how many medals they've won. Right. Yeah. As if athletes aren't getting incentives based on which medals they win, as if all of this stuff isn't happening behind the scenes that everybody knows is happening behind the scenes. Right. Mm -hmm. That being said, I'm not against the Olympics in any way, shape or form. I think it's a really great thing. Um, I I would be really bummed out if they just got rid of them altogether. Oh that's yeah, a terrible, me too. Yeah, I think that's a terrible. That would be really sad. It. But
1: it's not like the Olympics in and of themselves are a bad thing or a no. negative thing. It's just that there are some very real problems that you know you can't just constantly turn a blind eye to and expect mm-hmm. things to run smoothly because they won't.
0: Yeah, but but there's certainly that. Yeah, there's there's certainly that root in nineteenth century sensibilities. There's certainly that root in mm-hmm. in. Uh, nationalist sensibilities that's still kind of a little bit gross sometimes when you watch some parts yeah. of the Olympics. Yeah. Some of the some of the opening ceremonies get a little bit like oh okay. Yeah. <laughs> mm, weird. Um, there's there's um, colonialist stuff that needs to be reckoned with. I mean at mm-hmm. the at the 1904 St. Louis uh, Olympics there was a there was a what they called an anthropology day where they had indigenous people from various nations come and compete in indigenous hmm. uh, uh, events that was very like sideshowy. Yeah, it was not good. You've got similar criticisms of um, events that have been held in in various places in, in Australia, in the United States, in Canada in terms of their treatment of indigenous people in regards to uh, the ceremonies, in terms yeah. of locations. Um, yeah. You know, there's, there's a few things that we kind of need to take a look at surrounding the olympics and say like yeah it's, it's not okay to say like but it's just sport like yeah you know don't worry about it yeah this this doesn't matter it's just it's just sports
1: mm-hmm.
0: it's it's clearly more than that yeah and, it does and matter until until you recognize that i don't think you can really bring the games to a, a, a place where athletes and spectators can focus entirely on the games and just play their best. Yeah. And I think that would maybe be the ideal point to aim for mm-hmm. when it comes to all of this. Mm-hmm. But anyways, I think that's where uh, I'd like to leave the the games for today. Would like to get your, your final reactions though. What did you think of the the topic?
1: Yeah, that was, that was a really interesting topic. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like we covered a lot of different like subtopics along, like in the process, like we talked about world war one, world war two, mm-hmm. um, Hitler. Yeah. Um, just a lot of the the political events that occurred throughout a really long Span of time. Yeah, it was really interesting and fun for me to hear about some of the older <laughs> events that are no longer part of the Olympics. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, I, that was I really a lot like of fun too.
0: Yeah, no, it's 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 a fascinating topic. I always really like doing these more social topics with you because like we get to take a little bit of a different perspective on some things that mm-hmm. are really well worn. Yeah, there's there's how many. Uh, it's
1: refreshing. It's kind of yeah, yeah, it's different.
0: Yeah, there's how many documentaries and things out there on World War II, but like sure. the, the way that it intersects with sport is is. Uh, a little bit different that's not usually the take that that people take on it right so yeah yeah I, I really enjoyed putting this one together it was uh, a little bit lighter than a lot of things that we do so mm-hmm. um, it was a lot of fun yeah I, I had fun too so uh yeah let's leave it there uh, thank you so much for coming on today
1: yeah thanks for having me
0: the Munich massacre at the 1972 games coinciding with the departure of Brundage as IOC president, was a kind of loss of innocence for the Olympics. The organizing body lost any ability to pretend that the Olympics existed separate from the real world, at the same time as the staunchest supporter of no politics and sport lost his leadership position. While the Olympics still struggle to address political issues, the time since Munich has been a clear second era for the Games. Since HI101's format can lead to some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post there for each episode. For example, in this episode, I said that the Munich games weren't put on hold at all. In reality, there was a delay of about a day and a half while the situation resolved. That correction and more are on the site. If there are any errors I've missed there, please let me know so I can add them. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash HI101podcast, on Twitter at HI101podcast, or by email at contact at HI101.ca. If you'd like to support the show, please visit patreon.com slash HI101 to make a monthly pledge or paypal.me slash HI101 for a single donation. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your interest, take a look around. I guarantee there's plenty of interesting information out there we didn't cover. I'm Adam Bleski, and this has been HI101.